following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Welcome, everyone. Praise God. I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at Love City Church, and I am so super thankful to be here with all of you right now celebrating our risen Savior. Uh, If you've been around here a while, you may be alarmed because you probably are thinking, man, I didn't think Pastor Vince was a pastel colored shirt kind of guy. And I want you to know you're right. Okay, so if you see me on any other day with a shirt like this on, I'm in duress and I'm signaling for help. Okay, so act accordingly. But on Easter, the whole world just looks a little brighter. I'm more colorful on the inside, and so I'm fine with this shirt. Okay, so Everything's all right, all right? This is not me asking for help, but any other day, call 911, okay? All right, uh, please turn with me to the book of First Peter, uh, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 together. This is our favorite day of the year. Today, we remember the greatest reveal in all of history. Today, we celebrate God revealing the reality of his redemptive purposes, Today, we celebrate the culmination of a plan that unfolded over thousands of years. Today, we rejoice in this beautiful truth. Jesus Christ rose up from the grave and struck down Satan, sin, and death. Amen. So what, that, what does that mean? That means that those trapped in darkness can now live in the light. That means that all who suffer the spiritual sickness of sin can be healed And made whole. Because Jesus rose from the grave, there is living hope for every person. Now, if that doesn't make you want to shout amen or glory or something, I don't know what will, okay? There's living hope for every single person. No, come on, friends. We're not there yet. We didn't get it yet. Here, think about this. Except for rare circumstances... If you don't have blood pumping to your brain for 20 minutes, if if your heart stops for 20 minutes, there is no hope, typically, of you being revived. Jesus was in the tomb for three days, okay? Under any normal circumstances, that is a hopeless situation. But part of what Jesus showed us in raising from the dead is that there is no such thing as a hopeless situation in God. Amen. I can't speak for you, but that message matters to me. Because sometimes I'm tempted to believe that certain people or certain situations are hopeless. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I go beyond being tempted and I actually believe the lie that there is no hope in certain scenarios. But I rejoice in the resurrection of my king, which serves as an eternal reminder that all things are possible through him. Now, before we read these verses in 1 Peter, I want to take a moment to talk about the reasonableness of the resurrection. I tend to do this every year. Um, I spent more time on it uh, in years past, but I think it's important for us to at least address the stumbling block that is the, the reality of the resurrection. There are some that are in a place of doubting that that's a real fact, doubting that that's a historical event, or maybe they just, they're not sure what to think about it. And I think it's good for us as the church to show people we're not afraid of those questions. We welcome that curiosity and and even doubts and struggles. All of that is on the table, and those questions are welcome. That's part of what we're here for, is to hold people's hand and walk them through those things. And so uh, 
I'm not going to get as deep as I have in other years talking about the reasonableness of the Lord's resurrection, but I just want to, I want to show you something that the Lord showed me recently while studying. The question here, I think, is a reasonable question is, why do billions of people worship Jesus 2,000 years after he ascended into heaven? Do you, I mean, that, that's a major deal, right? That's a long time, and that's a lot of people. I mean, think about it. He was just the son of a Jewish carpenter if he wasn't the Messiah sent from heaven, right? What I'm saying is something unusual happened with this man. Maybe that's not sticking for you. Let's, let's use something to contrast. Do you, do you guys know the name of the emperor of Rome during the time of Jesus? Of course you don't because you're not nerds. I'm going to tell you, his name was Tiberius, okay? So during Jesus' life, for the most part, Tiberius was the emperor. He was a brilliant military commander, and he was the second emperor of Rome. He was responsible both for expanding and securing the borders of the massive and vast Roman Empire. And he also encouraged the worship of the first emperor, Augustus, while helping to develop a precedent for Roman emperors to be worshipped as gods after they died. There were some uh, cults within the Roman Empire that, that were advocating for more of a Hellenistic viewpoint where they would worship, as soon as somebody became emperor, they started to worship them as gods. Tiberius didn't like that idea, but he was very much an advocate for the idea that once they had died, they should be venerated as divine. So temples would be built, there would be people, freedmen, freed slaves, that would committed just to the worship of the emperor that had died. So my question then is, why does this matter? Does it matter? Am I just trying to impress you with some history facts? No. Tiberius, okay, I told you I wanted to contrast this to, to make this stick. Tiberius was the emperor of the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. He had hundreds of thousands of loyal subjects who worshipped him as God after he died. Okay? Jesus was a carpenter's son from a backwater town that had 11 guys who stuck with him until his crucifixion, but even they ran once the soldiers who were loyal to Tiberius crucified him. Like a common thief. What am I saying? Which one do you think we should be worshiping today if all things were just normal? The normal course of history just unfolded. If something unique didn't happen. Pastor Jordan, I know we haven't yet today, but are we going to be singing any songs to Tiberius during this service? No, we are not. And I'll bet you a chicken dinner we could fly all over the world, wherever we want to go, going into every single place of worship in this whole planet. You wouldn't have found anybody singing to Tiberius. The emperor God, so-called. How do we explain that? The only explanation is something happened with this Jesus guy. Something so incredible and powerful that changed the whole course of human history. Let me read you something that I think is a solid and reasonable possibility. All I've led you to right now is that if really we should all be singing to Tiberius today, all things considered, right? If which religion should have flourished, the one that had hundreds of thousands of followers, that, that flowed out of the people that were in control at the time, or, or this guy over here on the side that was just kind of part of the subjugated community that was underneath the Roman rule, that nobody would have known about, that even his friends ditched him. 
Here's what I think happened. Here's the unique thing that I think happened. This is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, is also, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." Here's the deal. Tiberius and every other wannabe God-man is dead, and they stayed dead. Jesus Christ, the only one who is both God and man, he died as well, but he didn't stay dead. He's alive, and he will be forever, and that is why we worship him. If you're here today, and you're unsure of whether Jesus is worthy of your worship, the verses from 1 Corinthians that I just read you, they are a succinct summary of the good news of the gospel. The good news, though, makes little sense if I don't take a little time to break the bad news to you. The Bible tells us what we already know intuitively. No human is perfect. However, God is perfect and holy, and our sin has caused a relational rift between us and him. Only that which is perfect can be in close proximity and relationship to God. Because anything darkened by the stain of sin would be consumed by the burning radiance of his glory and his holiness. This would be soul-crushing and hope-destroying if it weren't for the good news. Though we cannot make ourselves perfectly righteous, Jesus was and is. That's what it means when it says he died for our sins. He didn't sin, but he took the punishment for our sin, and he gave us the reward of his obedience. The way you receive this gift of all gifts is to believe. God only asks that you would believe you need him. Repent of your sin and ask him to save you. Our prayer is that you would Receive the good news of the gospel today by faith and be saved. And we want to walk with you as you learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Amen. Our title for today's sermon is Living Hope. So let's read these verses written by the Apostle Peter, who's an eyewitness of all that occurred, and use the lens of his experience to examine these things together. First Peter, we're in chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Praise God for his word. So Peter here, uh, going back to verse 1, Peter is writing to all Christians. He probably just names these places 
as they are most likely to receive his letter first as it travels. Um, we, we see he's writing to everybody because he writes to all who are scattered aliens. And that might be weird language, but this language helps us understand our need as followers of Jesus for real hope. And why is that? It's because we are not home. We were made for an eternal and heavenly country. And that means we will find ourselves longing for something more during our whole existence in this temporal world. And we are going to need hope to walk that out. Praise God. It's available. Verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The Bible is clear that God chose us before we were ever born or had a chance to choose him. It seems clear that God, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, applied his perfect foreknowledge of all things in this divine process of election. Though it is not perfectly clear how all of that works exactly. But I've got good news for you. We don't have to know the exact specifics of how God foreknew and chose us for salvation to rejoice in the fact that he did. That is what's made plain. Praise God. So what were we chosen for? It says to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, that's a strange phrase, isn't it, to our modern ears? But an ancient person familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system would have known exactly what he meant. As a foreshadowing of Christ's coming, as the final spotless Lamb of God, who is sacrificed to atone for the sins of all who come to him by faith, God put in place a system for the sacrifice of animals. See, the wages of sin is death. And so somebody has to die when sin is committed. God allowed his people to shed the blood of bulls and sheep and goats, and in some cases sprinkle that blood upon the altar or on the people. If you go back and look in the Old Testament, there was different times that was done. And why? Why? What was that happening? Well, that was happening. That blood was shed, and it was sprinkled upon the people as, as temporary atonement for sin. That shed blood paid the price for the sins of the people. Thankfully, Jesus came as the last and perfect sacrifice, and that is why it is said that we are sprinkled with his blood. There's no more need for the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus came and fulfilled all that that meant and all that that was meant to do. It's interesting here in this verse to see that we are chosen by God to obey Jesus, and we obey Jesus by the ongoing sanctifying work of the Spirit. So we're chosen by God to obey Jesus and that happens by the ongoing work, sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so we see all three members of the Trinitarian Godhead, they are all active and involved in our redemption. Praise God. Thankful. Verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What do we see here? We see that it's not according to us or our greatness or some intrinsic value in us, but it is according to God's great mercy upon us that we are born again. This is the language Jesus used, this born-again language, to describe salvation to a man named Nicodemus. You may remember that if you've read 
the Gospels. Nicodemus was a highly respected leader in his community. He was not the kind of person many would say needs religion to help him get his life together. From the outside, everyone would have thought, that's the guy. That's the guy I want to be. I'm looking up to him. Part of why the message of Jesus was so shocking is it put everyone in the same category. The rich and the poor, the respected and the reviled. He taught that they all needed saving and that that was only possible by trusting him to save them. That ticked a lot of people off. That's part of how Jesus got killed. (laughs) People don't like to hear that they need a savior oftentimes, especially if they have deluded themselves into thinking that they're just fine on their own. Now, there are two very important points found in this verse that we need to dwell on for a moment. The first is what we are born to, and the second is what we are born through. First, we see here that we are born to a living hope. Now, what does this mean? How is living hope different from any other kind of hope? Is it different? Or is living just a nice adjective to stick in front of hope and makes the language more flowery? Is that what's going on here? I would say no. An English dictionary will define hope as desiring something to happen. Okay? And this is how most of us think of the word, and it's how we use it, right? We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope I get this job, right? People in Cincinnati know this kind of hope well because many of them are currently hoping that the Bengals are going to do better this year because they got a new coach. We'll see how that goes, right? I'm not saying you can't hope for that. You can hope for it if you care about it. Hallelujah, whatever. But the living hope described here and throughout the Scriptures is a different idea altogether. It's, it's not just desiring something to happen. It's a confident expectation that it will happen. But that's, so let's think about this. That sounds kind of cocky though, right? It, it seems a bit presumptive to have a confident expectation of something, to even go so far as to say that you know it will happen. That might sound like you're a little full of yourself. But the reason the Bible tells us here that we can have this kind of living hope is because of the object of that hope, right? Because I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope I get this job, or I hope my sports ball team does well, right? Those, all of those hopes, they are all subject to a myriad of factors that would make it foolish to say you have a confident expectation, right? Or for you to say you know what is going to happen. All kinds of things could go wrong or right or get in the middle. There's all kinds of variables you can't factor for, okay? But the living hope described here is not based on situations, scenarios, or circumstances. It is not subject to human error or unexpected variables. This living hope is sure because it is based on one perfect person, and his name is Jesus. So if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, Possibly, well, okay, but why can we be so confident in Jesus? You're hanging your whole hat on this Jesus character. That's, that's kind of big talk. Okay, that's fair. How can we be sure he will fulfill every promise he made and uphold every word he spoke? Why is it not foolish to put that much confidence in this Jesus, friends? Because he made the outlandish and impossible claim 
that he would be killed by human hands and that he would rise from the dead three days later to save human souls, and then he did it. I feel real confident with that guy. Paul said just after those verses that I read you earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, just after those, he said, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, all of us who trust him should be pitied. (laughs) But friends, he did. Jesus did rise. And our hope is in him and he is alive and will be alive forevermore. And so this hope we have will not be disappointed. We can have a confident expectation of what's about to happen. If it's something that comes that flows from the promises and the words of God our Father. Why do we need this living hope? Why do we need this confident expectation that is centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Why is it not okay just to settle for the hope we described earlier? Where you just kind of desire something to happen and, well, I hope it goes that way. Is, is that not enough? There's two reasons. Maybe more, but I'm going to give you two. Two reasons. The first reason is that the dead hope the world offers, it fails you in two tragic ways. The first way that worldly hope fails to deliver is that you may not get what you are hoping for. If your greatest hope is in getting a good job or making good money or finding a good spouse or having good kids or having good health, one of the most devastating things that can happen is that you would not get those things. One of the most devastating things that can happen is that one of the thousand ways that those things could go wrong end up with you disappointed. When your greatest hope and desire is in something other than Jesus and the eternal life he gives by grace, there is a great possibility you will be crushed when that thing doesn't go the way you wanted. The second way that worldly hope fails to deliver is that you may get what you are hoping for. If your greatest hope is in getting a good job or making good money or finding a good spouse or having good kids or having good health, one of the most devastating things that can happen is that you would get those things and all your dreams come true. Because soon after, you would join the millions of tormented souls throughout the ages who climbed to the top of the mountain that is human achievement looked around and wept with despair as they realized it did not provide the fulfillment, purpose, and joy they thought it would. Many have tragically taken their own lives when they grasped everything they were hoping and striving for because, sadly, that was the very thing that led them to utter hopelessness. Do you understand how that works? If you spend, if all of your hope is focused on One of those things or all of those things. Maybe you're really ambitious. Maybe your hope is the great job and the great money and the great health and the great kids and the great spouse. Maybe you want it all. You've listened to lots of self-help stuff and so you know you're worth it. And you deserve it. And you do all you got to do. You claw and you fight and you make it to the top of the mountain. You've got it all. Do you understand how that could lead you to hopelessness when you realize that all of the fulfillment and the purpose and the joy 
and the fullness you thought was going to come out of all of those achievements isn't meeting you there at the top of that mountain? Now where do you go? A lot of people jump off. Worldly hope can fail you two ways. And either one, the enemy's fine with and breaks the heart of God. The next reason why we need this living hope is that it anchors our souls. It anchors our souls, whether our struggle is from the past, the present, or the future. It's really interesting that Peter writes about this living hope, that Peter does. If we look at the events of Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection through his eyes, it can really help us see why he writes this way. The resurrection of Jesus would have had powerful implications for how Peter interpreted the intense struggle of his recent past. What do I mean by that? I mean, when Jesus rose from the grave, just three days later, Peter had witnessed the guy he had given up everything to follow because he believed he was the Messiah, the king, the one they were waiting for. He watched that guy be arrested He even tried to pull his sword and defend him and was told to put it away. Watched the guy he'd given up everything to follow be arrested, be beaten, tortured, mocked, made a fool of, crucified, and murdered. That was the struggle of Peter's recent past. But do you understand how the resurrection could have helped him to see that in a different way? See, because when he was in the midst of those events, we know that Peter wasn't able to cling to a living hope because we know that Peter was confronted by a young girl and asked, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And, And he got so mad, he denied her three times and even cursed at her, right? So we know he wasn't able to, with from his perspective, see what God was doing. And that is many times the issue that we have, friends. Peter, at, at the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, he's... It's like he's looking through a keyhole, right? You ever looked through a keyhole into a room or a little crack in the door? You can just see a little sliver, a little piece of what's going on in there. That is how our vision is because we are locked into time. We experience this drama unfolding as it happens. But God is not restricted like that, you understand. God's in the room. He sees all the pieces. He sees how all of it works together. And he said, dear child, I see it. Trust me. I know the keyhole little spot in the, in the timeline that you can perceive. You don't see how I could possibly. Peter couldn't see how possibly his master being murdered by the Romans was a part of God's plan. But when he rose up out the grave, I bet Peter started to be able to see a little bit, don't you? Woo, come on. We're talking about Peter, but let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. How many things from your past, when you view it just through that little microcosm of, of, of the, the timeline that it happened in, it, it's, a, it's a wound that festers. It's a wound that won't heal. How many of you have not been able to apply the reality of Jesus' resurrection to your past pains and hurts? What does it mean in all the ways that, and listen, the sources of these hurts can be many. It could be, your sin could be the issue. You could have sinned and caused hurt and pain in your life and the lives of others. It could be the sins of others that caused this pain. But what does the resurrection of Jesus say to that situation? Well, it says that there's hope. It says that there's 
very probably, and most definitely, a purpose in that. That God's working something. God's doing something. And he's never failed to be faithful to his promise to work all things to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But I don't see it. Oh, dear friend. (laughs) Oftentimes we don't. And so we cling to his promises by faith and we ask him to show us. Sometimes that picture never becomes totally clear. Sometimes all I have is the promise. Sometimes all I have is to be able to look back to the resurrection of Christ and see that many people were dejected and demoralized. They were real discouraged when their master, their Messiah, the one they thought that was going to come and make everything better, bled and died on the cross. They could not figure out what was going on. They scattered in fear. And yet, it was the very thing God intended at that very time because a plan was unfolding. Many of us live imprisoned by wounds of the past. If we would take the lens of Christ's resurrection and look at those things with it, it would change. It would help us to see. It would help us to trust the good working of God's plan through all suffering and pain, through every trial and struggle. We need that kind of living hope. We need that kind of living hope to be freed from all of those those prison cells that lock us down from our past. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus caused Peter to write this letter, encouraging believers to view their current struggle through the lens of living hope. And so not only would the resurrection have helped Peter understand what all that previous pain was about, it gave him the ability not only to see things for himself, but to encourage others to see their current struggle through that lens as well. Let me read you another portion from this letter of First Peter. So uh, the heading in this, if you go to look at it, First Peter 4, 12, oftentimes will say, share the sufferings of Christ. Let me read you this. The resurrection helped Peter have living hope in the midst of struggle, and encourage other people to as well. Here's what he writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The resurrection of Christ allowed Peter to have this living hope, even though people that he loved and knew, people that were his brothers and sisters in Christ. At this point, at the writing of this letter, mainly what he's trying to encourage them to stand fast in the midst of is real deal, like life and death persecution for the faith. Many of these people were losing their families, their inheritances, they were losing their social connections, and if they were too vocal or uh, unwilling, if they got stuck in a spot where they had to choose between, hey, are you going to worship the emperor or are you going to worship this Jesus, their life was on the line. And yet, this persecution of Christians, what, what, what was the first thing he said? He called the aliens something. He said, those of you who are scattered. That's interesting. The Christian faith didn't get tamped out. The fire of the Christian faith, the fire of the truth about Jesus rising from the dead, it didn't get tamped out by this persecution like the persecutors wanted. It just scattered the sparks, man, and started fires all over the place. That's part of why we don't worship Tiberius today. Because they had living hope, man. Their Savior rose from the grave. And they weren't going to shut up about it. They didn't care who said boo. How about us? 
just today reports came that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka that lost their life because they gathered to worship. We should lament and acknowledge that. that these, here, here's the thing, man. We sit here in our context and struggle to connect sometimes to what Peter's talking about. We have brothers and sisters in Christ right now that it is not a struggle for them. They get it because they're in it. And our prayers should be for them. But I, I need us to also understand that even if, if sometimes we live like that frog in the pot that they're you know, turning the water up, temperature up one degree at a time, just kind of boiling without knowing it, even though that's probably what our persecution looks like many times, we need to understand we are under attack. Satan is scheming. And there are ways that we have oppression coming at us, that we have um, the forces of darkness trying to stop us from doing what it is God's called us to do, from seeing uh, our life the way God sees it, that we've been bought with a price, that we have a purpose far greater than just eking out some existence for 70 or 80 years, that we've been called to be ambassadors of the greatest message of good news and hope the world has ever seen, that Jesus died and rose again. And because of that, those who are enslaved by sin can be set free. So what does it look like? Are, are we taking what, what Paul, Paul in his writings about persecution, Peter in his writings about how to deal with persecution, none of them could have wrote what they wrote if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. There'd have been nothing to say. <clears throat> Hope in what? He died and he's dead. He said a lot of great things. He healed people. He fed people. If, if he didn't rise from the grave, then then we can't look at today. We can't look at the current struggle you're going through right now through the lens of living hope with a confident expectation that God will work those things for your good. It may be good that wouldn't be the way you would define it, but dear friends, I'm firmly convinced that God would grant us our prayers if we prayed knowing all that he knows. And I think we would pray Different many times if we knew all that he knows. Amen. The resurrection gives us a living hope that anchors us and helps us deal with past struggles and hurts. It helps us in our current situation. All of you are going through something. I understand that. I'm not trying to trivialize that by mentioning the fact that we have brothers and sisters today that lost their life by bomb attack in their place of worship. I'm not trivializing your issue. Your issues are real. Your struggles are real. You have real opposition against you in your life. You have real things that be trying to keep you from faithfully following Jesus. But we can't just, we can't just tune out or numb ourselves or get distracted or, or, or go to some coping mechanism. We have to stare at those things right in the face. We have to apply the living hope that comes from understanding that Jesus beat death. And so that means whatever's facing me ain't an enemy that's got that kind of pedigree. You understand? And the very worst that can happen at this point is that somehow my physical life is brought to an end. I win! How do you beat me if I really don't fear death? If the resurrection of Christ gives me a living hope knowing I'm following him. I'm not just following him and living this life. man. When I take my last breath... I get to be like him. I get to resurrect as well. Death is not an end, man. It's the beginning to what I was really made for. <laughs> That'll change the way we do some stuff. 
The resurrection of Jesus gave Peter a living hope for past, present, but it also removed the anxiety from an unknown future. Let me read you verses 4 through 9, right here in 1 Peter where we were. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishing, more precious than gold that is perishing, friends, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the future promise we must set our minds upon when we are tempted to be anxious about the future. What is the inheritance he's talking about? What is that unperishable? You aren't going to be able to mess it up. Gold, it can perish Yeah, that's precious, but it ain't this precious. What is your inheritance? What is he talking about? What do we have to look forward to? What is the picture that should remove for us any anxiety about the future? Listen, I know there are things in the natural that you, it it, it is natural for you to be anxious about the future. There is stuff that could go wrong. There's lots of stuff that looks like it's gonna go wrong. But why does that not put us in a place of anxiety? What is it? about the resurrection of Christ. What is this inheritance, this imperishable inheritance we're being pointed to? Friends, let me read you an excerpt from the Revelation of John. This is chapter 21. This is what we're talking about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. (sighs) Come on, man. That is what we're setting our hope on. And why? That's what what is what is this revelation of John? This is outlandish. This sounds impossible. Yeah, so was a Jewish carpenter's son saying he was going to be murdered by human hands but rise three days later to save human souls. But guess what? That impossible thing happened. And so will this one. 
Hallelujah. Dear friends, this living hope that we have because Jesus rose from the grave, it answers the suffering of our past, the struggles we face currently, and any anxiety we have about the future. Glory to God alone. Hallelujah. May we be a people who walk in the living hope that our merciful God has provided through the resurrection of Jesus, our perfect Savior King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Resurrection Day. Thank you that you showed us that you don't just talk, but you do exactly what you say. Thank you, Lord, that we can lean heavy upon your promises and we will never be disappointed. Thank you that the hope you provide is living. Thank you, Lord, we're not left with a, a question mark in our desire that we just, well, we hope you're going to be faithful or we hope things are going to work out or we hope you're going to do what you said you would do. But I thank you, God, that this living hope is a confident expectation that we Absolutely, because of your resurrection, we can stand firm knowing that what you have said will come to pass. Lord, we know that's true at the individual level. You, you are so big, and yet you are intimately aware of the details and the inner workings of every heart within the sound of my voice. And you're dealing in every single situation. You are doing what you do, but you're also, all of that is factored into what you're doing at the, at the cosmic level, Lord, that you're, you're dealing with all these individual situations. You're working by your power in all of those, but all of those tie and weave together into this overall big plan that you have, and that all of that's going to come down to this finite point, and you're going to do just what you said you would do. You rose from the grave, and you conquered sin and death. And you've told us that the day is coming that all of their futile efforts to try to undo what you're doing, they're going to be stamped out. That you're going to, Lord Jesus, you're going to make every single enemy of yours your footstool and that you're raising us up to reign in that eternal victory with you. God, we look forward to that day with anxious expectation. And we know you're going to do it because everything you've told us so far, you've held true to your word. You've never failed us, God. Even in the times that we have shaken our fists at you, even at the times in our lack of understanding, we have accused you of failing to be faithful to your word. God, we know as we sit underneath the, the power and the anointing of your Holy Spirit and we think through these things with spiritual wisdom applied to it, God, we know, we know. You have been faithful. We haven't, but you have. And so God, please forgive us for every single time we've doubted you. You've never given us any reason to. God, forgive us for the times we have not walked and lived in this living hope. We haven't walked out the implications of the fact that you rose from the grave, God. That that means those of us that have been brought into your family, your kingdom by faith in the eternal son. God, many of us, we've, we've been distracted. This, this living hope, it hasn't anchored our soul We've let things from the past distract us or discourage us. We've let current situations knock us off track and keep us out of what it is you've made us to do. Sometimes, God, it's just anxiety for things that haven't even happened yet, Lord, that keeps us from obeying your call to go into all the world and make disciples. So, God, we repent for every single thing that has knocked us off of the purpose for which you created us. 
And God, we ask for your help. We ask for you to divinely intervene, to work, continue that empowering work, that sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit in us. God, equip us and guide us and teach us and shape us and make us more like you. God, we want to live out this living hope. God, we want to do that for your glory because you are worthy of our lives, focused on bringing you glory. And we want to do that, God. Because we want to see as many people as possible be a part of your eternal kingdom. And we know that you've chosen to use us to be a part of that great and glorious task of sharing the good news. That there's hope for every man and every woman because of Jesus. Thank you for including us. Thank you for seeing us somehow, seeing something in us. For giving us all that we would need to join you in the greatest rescue mission that has ever been undertaken. Thank you for letting us be a part of our Father's business. We love you, and we worship you. We magnify and exalt you. We lift you high. You're the only one worthy of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.